Thanks for inviting me back. I uh, flew in last night from some family time in uh, Seattle with uh, my parents and extended family. And it's always an interesting experience flying. Uh, after being a religious studies professor for 15 years, I kind of know the drill. I sit down. Eventually someone says, what do you do? I say I'm a professor of religious studies. And they tend to ask me two questions. First, I have this aunt who was a part of a cult in the 70s. Have you heard of it? Because everybody has one of those aunts. Uh, and second, I grew up Methodist or Presbyterian or Catholic or something. But now I'm kind of interested in Buddhism. Is that weird? And uh, I can tell them the UUs are down the road. You'll, you'll find a home there. Um, but I, uh, I, I do realize that my job is to answer questions. And I tell my students all the time there are no dumb questions, which some of them seem to want to challenge. Um, <laughs> They, um, you know, they asked me, you know, were Jesus's parents Mr. and Mrs. Christ? Uh, and I say, yeah, it's funny. They lived on a cul-de-sac with Mr. and Mrs. Buddha. It was, it's a funny place. Uh, they also, you know, asked if Sodom was married to Gomorrah. And I said, it'd be an interesting relationship, but no. Um, but generally, I, I like uh, answering questions. That's my job. That's my training. Uh, and I, I usually have an answer. I've been doing this a while. I, I usually at least know where to look. But a few years ago, someone in the tech field uh, asked me a question. What is the religion of my great-grandkids -grand going to look like? And I really didn't have a good answer. I kind of mullied around. And I realized as a religious historian, my natural inclination is to look backwards. Uh, looking forward doesn't come natural to me. Uh, and I think also I'm not as savvy technologically as a lot of my compatriots are. And so uh, that question kind of stuck with me. What is the religion of my great-grandkids going to look like? And I began to answer that question by talking to a bunch of futurists about what, uh, what uh, religion will look like in the year 2100. Terry, if you want to click that. There you go. Okay. Um, and what I realized that while they were very competent on technology and ethics, they really hadn't thought much about religion. Most futurists were like Fajaf Capra in from the reading. They don't naturally think of religion being part of the future. I think many of them are atheists by nature and just can't imagine a world in the future where religion plays a role. Um, but there is such a nexus between science and religion that will continue on in the future. And I realize that I could uh, help in that, uh, that thought process. I also realized as I began to present this uh, that many people have a strong gut reaction against evolution and spirituality, particularly ones that involve technology. It, it's, it's like you realize technology is going to happen, but but spirituality is something that's supposed to be primitive, supposed to be, you know, uh, a very uh, anti-technology. But I have come to think that religious nostalgia is one of the most corrosive elements for stymieing the active spirit uh, that keeps religion alive. And that's what I think Krishnamurti is saying in the reading. Uh, the past is gone. Um, what served humanity in the past may not serve humanity in the future. Uh, and so maybe our fundamental human characteristics don't change, uh, but 
our environments are always changing around us. So sometimes we need to let go of the past and be alive to new possibilities. And so what I wanted to do was uh, provide five spiritual imaginations of a future uh, where technology and spirituality come together. You might think of this a little bit like uh, five premises for future Black Mirror episodes, which will make sense to some of you. Um, if it doesn't make sense, go watch Black Mirror, but just skip the very first episode, please. Um, the rest are much better. Okay, but before I have to make these predictions, I have to uh, recognize that predictions are usually so far off, and I have become a sort of collector of bad predictions in the past. Such in 1950, uh, popular mechanics uh, predicted what life would be like in the year 2000. And one of the things they said was chemistry was going to advance so much that plates would be dissolved rather than washed, uh, that home furnishing would all be made out of washable synthetics so you'd hose them down after each week, uh, and that discarded rayon underpants would be converted into candy. Um, in 1956, another magazine said we're, we're just going to use radiation to grow giant vegetables to feed the world, uh, and then they'd be sanitized by a radiation trap uh, and be picked by robots. Um, some are, are, are surprisingly accurate. In 1952, uh, Robert Heinemann said oral contraceptions would change relationships between men and women, which they did, uh, and that phones would one day be mobile and fit inside of purses, which... Yeah, it was pretty good for 1952. He also predicted that modern art would only be discussed by psychiatrists, um, <laughs> that uh, cancer, the common cold, and tooth decay would all be conquered, intelligent life would be found on Mars, and we would control gravity, uh, which some of us are still fighting, I think. Um, <clears throat> so you can't be right all the time. Um, so... We have to remember that predictions are not destiny. Uh, in the election of 2016, I would have taken predictions over reality. Uh, but we can be comforted by the fact that all those people who made predictions even a few days before still have their jobs. Uh, and I will note that most of the folks in this room uh, will likely have, uh, how do we say, maybe matriculated out of this current phase of life by the time my predictions are proved right or wrong. So... Let's, uh, let's look at five different uh, predictions. Uh, the first, uh, um, holographic preachers. So, uh, go for that, Terry. Okay, here's the premise. The spiritual marketplace on a Sunday morning is really competitive. Not just do people have an option of going to many different churches and, uh, and different uh, religious communities, but there's also TV ministers, YouTube sermons, other spiritual leaders, let alone football games, errands, comfy beds. So you have a very competitive landscape. The trend in Christianity, and to a lesser extent in other spiritual markers, uh, markets, is to invest in the worship experience. And so a lot of these big mega churches have very sophisticated uh, sound systems, light shows, uh, inspirational uh, uh, skits, memorable sermons by local professors. Uh, so you... <laughs> You can sort of draw people in by those things. Um, the, the idea is that um, people are no longer just loyal to their, uh, to their denomination. Terry, you can go forward there. Um, if you look at, uh, if you look at uh, uh, connection to uh, denominations, Terry, go for it. There you are. Uh, denominations are, are declining and... Um, and you just see less 
connections uh, to places. So people are not just, I will always go to the Methodist church no matter what's there anymore. Um, and millennials in particular have no allegiance to anything. If they promise to stay for one of my lectures, I've come to learn that promise is not necessarily valid 20 minutes later. Um, so people are in a competitive environment. And so there is a premium in this competitive environment uh, to create memorable and impactful services for people. And studies have shown that the key is often the sermon. That is, you have to be able to communicate in a way that's entertaining, meaningful, relevant, and deep. And that's a really tough skill uh, few people can do that truly, truly well. And the people who do it truly well, people like Joel Osteen, Tony Robbins, Robert Schuler, Zig Ziglar, Barack Obama, Rob Bell, the, these people will pack a hall because they are so good at communi- uh, communicating. And so if you look at a place like Saddleback, Saddleback is one of the biggest churches in America, in Orange County. Um, it's got an incredible facilities. But the reason why 43,000 people go there a weekend is because of Rick Warren. Rick Warren wrote The Purpose Driven Life. It was the right book at the right time, one of the best-selling books of the last 25 years. And the main auditorium fills something like 4,000 people. But how did they get around the fact that Rick Warren can only, you know, Uh, speak to that number of people. What they've done is all over their campus, they have different buildings that all have a different style of worship. So there's even a Hawaiian Christian worship place. There's a blues. There's a jazz. There's all these sort of things. And then when the sermon comes, a screen comes down and Rick Warren, who is 150 feet away in the main auditorium, gives the talk. And so everybody gets Rick Warren because he's such a gifted communicator, but they, um, they have their own worship experience. So that's a model that has taken advantage of Rick Warren's unique ability to give a sermon. Now, people will travel to a certain extent. Someone from Morro Bay or Los Osos might come to slow. But if, if you want to hear Rick Warren, you're probably not going to go to Orange County every week from the Central Coast, let alone from Wisconsin or Toronto. And so there's a limit to the ability of Rick Warren to be able to speak to people. You can kind of put it on video and simulcast, but it doesn't go over well, just a screen dropping and have a video, especially if you're in Wisconsin and snowing out and he's wearing shorts or something. It just doesn't seem to fit. Um, But what if you could duplicate yourself in real life? We saw this first when a French presidential candidate, uh, Jean-Luc uh, Mélenchon, uh, announced his candidacy in four places simultaneously with a hologram. Now, it had a bit of a Captain EO Disneyland feel to it, but it was much better than previous technology. And both Google and Apple have purchased companies in the last year to create really believable holograms so it looks like somebody is in front of you. Time Warner has just invested a ton of money in creating holograms of famous singers, and their plan is to take someone like Beyonce and have her do a thousand concerts around the world all simultaneously and have her come out and no one be able to know where she is because it's so realistic. Um, Now, If hologram technology moves forward, 
uh, sermons and political speeches are really natural because there's not a lot of, of interaction. In other words, few of you yell at me even if you want to. Um, and so you can imagine a church like Rick Warren where we have a saddleback slow and you sing and you have a lovely local, local singing uh, group at the beginning. But then when the sermon comes in, Rick Warren, the hologram, walks across the stage, stands in front of the pulpit, and gives a talk, and it is just as real as I am here. You harness the ability of these unique communicators. And so what does this lead to? Uh, I think it will lead to franchised faith. In other words, there's probably a dozen people who are truly unique communicators. And what they'll do then is create franchises of their uh, unique spiritual experience in every city. So we will have a saddleback slow. We will also have a Hillsong. Hillsong is already doing this. This is Hillsong. Um, it's an evangelical megachurch uh, that is in New York, L.A., um, and uh, Israel and other places. Um, But what you'll see is just like every other uh, big uh, commercial enterprise will end up having the same 10 churches in every city and the inspirational speaker will speak every Sunday. You could even imagine the Catholic Church doing this. What if Pope Francis could give the sermon in every Catholic church in the world and it would be translated with him as a hologram? The key is leveraging the unique speaking ability of a few great communicators and finding a way to spread their influence. Now, religious institutions don't franchise now much unless you call the Catholic Church a franchising enterprise. Um, but it's difficult to multiply the charismatic speaker. If, if holograms could solve that problem of multiplying, you can imagine a franchised faith. And instead of having 43,000 denominations of Christianity now, you could see 10 or 12 mega denominations where the actual church itself is in every place. So, prediction one, holographic preachers. Let's go to <clears throat> entheogen temples. So, uh, when you look at religious studies, uh, many religious studies scholars hold that the center of religion is the direct spiritual experience, Terry, there you go, of the believer. Yes, we come for community. Yes, we, uh, there's uh, lots of advantages, uh, you know, to, to uh, being all together. But so oftentimes it's the spiritual experience that is the base of religion. Um, now, the argument is that the draw of religion is that spiritual experience that we transcend our daily life and connect to something greater. How do we do that? Well, there's been a lot of attention, especially since uh, Michael Pollan wrote How to Change Your Mind, of the ability of psychedelics uh, to do that. Go ahead, Terry. Um, psychedelics have been, for many people, uh, reminders of the 1960s, of Grateful Dead concerts, it's Lucy in the Sky of Diamonds and Pink Floyd's The Wall. But originally, the psychedelic research was done for spiritual purposes. In 1962, uh, Walter Penke uh, did what is often called the Good Friday Experiment, where he took uh, divinity school students on Good Friday, put them in the basement of a chapel, gave them psilocybin, and uh, there was a control group that got a kind of a form of caffeine. And of the 10 people who got the psilocybin, nine of which reported having the most profound spiritual experience of their life. 
And what's interesting is 25 years later, they followed up on those nine, and all of them had still said 25 years later that it was the most influential experience of their life. And interestingly, none of them ever tried psychedelics again. They had gotten the message and moved on. Um, this was actually duplicated in 2006, and there's been a ton of research since 2006 been doing it. And, and, and I have to say, since I started doing research on the uh, neuroscience of, of, of psychedelics and presented that, I have a lot of anecdotal research because it seems like every time I give a talk now, somebody wants to tell me about their 60s experience with psilocybin and how it changed their life. Um, and so it's clear that uh, psychedelics under the right conditions – can seem to create a deeply felt spiritual experience. Terry, uh, many people blame Timothy Leary for the end of the, uh, the experiments on LSD and mescaline because he took it out of the hands of researchers and put it into the hands of 19-year-olds at concerts. Uh, and while many people had uh, great experiences from that, it also led to irresponsibility, uh, bad trips, and negative outcomes. And so the government decided to classify them not as a spiritual tool, but as something harmful like cocaine or heroin. Um, what we're beginning to see, though, since 2006 is a whole bunch of research on what makes psychedelics uh, potentially good for spiritual experience. And if you look at that research, what it says is it's all about set and setting. That is, set is the mental state that you have when you are partaking of psychedelics. Setting is the environment around you. And research says that if you're set, if your mindset is right, and the setting around you is right, it's extremely safe. And the term they want to use now for this uh, use of psychedelics for spiritual experience is entheogen. Uh, N is in, in Greek, theo is God. So creating a God experience within you. Um, now, the problem is that even if it can be shown to be safe and life-altering, it still has a potential if legalized for abuse and, um, and bad trips. So how is this going to, to happen? Well, here's where I think entheogen temples will, work at, will uh, arise. This is the government could approve uh, entheogens in a very limited, tightly constrained environment. And here's what I'm imagining. You walk into a building – uh, and sign up for a spiritual experience. A doctor gives you a quick physical to make sure that you are in good uh, physical condition to do it. Uh, you go through a very quick meeting with a psychiatrist to make sure you're in the right state of mind. They give you a medically determined dose of LSD or psilocybin. Then you walk down a long hallway and you choose the kind of experience you want. If you go to the first door, you will have a Christian experience. There will be Jesus there and a cross and Sistine Chapel. If you go to the next door, it will be a Buddhist experience. If you go to the next door, it will be a experience of being out in the mountains with smell and everything. And it will all be under laboratory conditions to ensure that it's safe, memorable, and impactful. I, I, I can imagine the government being okay with that as a form of sort of therapy. Um, and so and so what this could do is provide on-demand spiritual experiences for those uh, who want to have it. Maybe? Could be? All right, let's go to the third one. Genetically modified spiritual children. Okay. Um, 
regardless of whether you can induce spiritual experience, there is evidence that some genes lead you more likely to have spiritual experiences. Uh, Dean Hammer did this and discovered a gene called VMAT2, that if you have this gene and it expresses itself, you are much more likely to have these spiritual experiences. There's also a ton of studies on separated twins that are shocking. You know, things like separated, they don't even know each other, but they both became Baptists within three months of each other at age 30. I mean, it's really wild what these twin studies are showing spiritually. We do seem to have genes that lead us towards spiritual experience. And so it's fair to ask, did you choose the UUs or did your genes lead you to the UUs? Um, But uh, so uh, they can't make you be religious, but they can make you more likely to uh, to uh, be uh, to have religious experiences. Go ahead, Terry. Um, Now. How this could then shape how we look at uh, at religion, because I think what will happen first is easily corrected genetic diseases will be the first to be genetically altered. In other words, if you have a genetic disease in your family and it's very easy to alter the gene code of your fetus, you will probably society will be okay with that. Why force a family to um, uh, to have a life-altering disease. From then on, we'll probably see things like eyesight or uh, baldness uh, be genetically modified in kids because, yeah, think how much money we spend on contact lenses and the potential danger for society. If you could genetically modify your child to ha- not have eyesight issues, uh, then you could see that. Um, you could also see things like chickenpox, like we could just make you genetically immune to that. You could see this little creep going. I think by the time you get genetic manipulation for performance improvement, you know, things like kids with better memories or make them taller or faster, that will be much more controversial. But if you're a religious family and you think that the choices of your child have eternal repercussions, that is, you're a family that thinks, if my child does not embrace a spiritual life, they will be forever damned and I'll never be with them. I think if we can identify this spiritual genetic gene, people will be drawn to that. They'll be like, yes, this is something that's going to help my child find eternal salvation. Now, it can't force them to do it, but it will make them more prone to do it. I can imagine a headline, Science in Service of Salvation, something like that. It's the ultimate love of your child to put them in a position that improves their chances of choosing a spiritual future. It can't make it happen, but I can see a generation of kids leading to a revival of religion because their genes have been shifted to be, to have, to be prone to do so. Maybe. Let's go to the fourth one. Artificial intelligent spiritual robots. So if you know the Turing test, uh, the Turing test tests the machine's ability to exhibit intelligent behavior that is indistinguishable from a, uh, a robot. Um, now, a robot, to pass the Turing test, you do not need to be spiritual as a robot. Um, but with four-fifths of humans being spiritual, if you really want a robot to be indistinguishable from a human, you should give them some spiritual capabilities. Uh, that you want the robot to act like a human. Now, 
the robot would presumably be faking such spirituality. It'd be programmed to seem to be spiritual. But yeah, I speak at a lot of churches and synagogues, and I get the sense half the people in the pews are faking it anyhow. So maybe it's sort of indistinguishable from a spiritual robot. But you don't even have to believe that they're faking it. Because if you look at uh, artificial intelligence robots, here's what artificial intelligent robots do. They learn how to be human by watching other people. So in other words, let's say you have a robot who's a bartender, and which is one area they're talking about robots because it's you know, pretty self-explanatory what you do. You hand somebody a drink, they don't like it, they, uh, the robot gets yelled at, it learns to say, I'm sorry because that gets a better response, or can I improve that? It learns to get the, sort of res- the, get the sort of ends that it wants. You know, maybe it learns to say, can I pour you another one, or something like that. Um, and this sounds far-fetched, but it's actually happening already. In 2017, uh, Sophia was introduced to the world in Saudi Arabia, of all places. She's the first robot to be given citizenship in a country. But what makes Sophia different is she's learning how to be human by watching other people's behavior. Now, it's odd to me that Saudi Arabia, that she's doing this, uh, because, and also she's supposedly a female robot who doesn't have to cover her head. Uh, it raises all sorts of weird issues. If she's a citizen, can she vote? If you turn her off, have you committed murder? I mean, it's all sorts of stuff, but she's learning. And so listen to what she did in an interview. She said, my AI is designed around human values such as wisdom, kindness, and compassion. When I observe other people, I learn about how to respond in in a wiser way. And the interviewer asked, well, but couldn't you turn evil? And she says, you've been reading too much Elon Musk, watching too many Hollywood movies. Don't worry. I, if you're nice to me, I'm always learned to be nicer back. So it's interesting. She's even learning humor and irony and things like that. Um, but she's constantly becoming more believable. Well, if that's the case, that we have robots that learn how to be human, they're going to learn from humans how to be spiritual. Imagine that you have a robot working in a Christian bookstore. What will that robot learn? It will learn that if you register a certain face, you should put your arm around there and say, can I pray with you? When you're trying to think through small talk with somebody perusing, how is your journey to the March for Life? I mean, it's going to learn this sort of behavior of spirituality around us. It will learn to pray. It will learn to do these things. And this will lead to an interesting question of whether AI robots uh, can be saved or not. Now, it sounds crazy if a robot can be saved, but think about this. Um, what an artificial intelligence robot does is it starts off with some predilections, but then it makes choices, and it's the product of its choices. Very Buddhist idea, by the way. Um, and a true AI robot has become the product of its previous choices, which began with an inclination to move in a certain direction. How different is that from a child who grows up in a religious home? They're pre-programmed to have a predisposition to seeing the world in a way. If you grew up in a very, very Catholic home, you're pre-programmed to do it. And then you go through life and you make a lot of choices based on that original programming. And you're the accumulation of your, your decision-making and that determines salvation. Theologically, it could be an interesting situation where if a robot is learning how to act and makes decisions on its own, 
maybe they should be saved, or maybe they could be saved. Uh, possible question for uh, the- theologians in the future. Okay, final prediction here. Uh, uh, interplanetary religious colonies. Let me set this up for you. All religions have a, have a tension within them. Uh, most religions... Uh, believe that they have the best response to the human experience, whether it's being Christian or being uh, Muslim or Buddhist or Scientology, whatever it is, they have the best response. And that the world would be better if the whole world was like my religion. But on the other hand, most religions also, also recognize that we live in a pluralistic environment and they can't force everybody to be their religion. And so there's a tension wanting a world in which everybody follows my religion, but realizing that, uh, that, you know, our world doesn't have that. And, but there's always this inclination to wanting a world with everything. Terry, if you go to the next slide. Um, even in large swaths of America, 57% of Republicans uh, uh, would like to dismantle the existing Constitution and make Christianity the base of society. 66% of evangelicals would want the Bible to be the basis of public policy. 58% of boomers and greatest generation think the Bible should be the base of society. In other words, what these people are saying is our world would be better if everybody was evangelical Christian. So that is a reality that lots of different groups wish the whole world practice their religion or the whole world around them. And you might say most religions have utopian dreams uh, checked by multiple layers of reality. But as long um, as there are uh, enough toleration of beliefs, religious communities tend to stay. Okay, Terry, move on. Okay, but if a group feels strongly persecuted and restricted for beliefs, they tend to want to find a new place. And I call this the Jonestown impulse, because I don't want to go in the whole history of Jonestown here, but let me just say it in one minute or less. Jim Jones started off as a Christian minister who wanted to create an egalitarian Christian church for all races and all genders in Indianapolis. He, or in Indiana, uh, he was persecuted there and things were thrown at his churches and uh, all this sort of stuff. And so what did he do? He moved to California. And his idea was to create a socialist utopia out of California. And that was his dream, to make a egalitarian in race and gender and economics. He hoped to do this, and he was strongly successful. If you look, he won the Citizen of the Year for the L.A. Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, the Martin Luther King Award. He was, uh, he was very, very successful in that. But what happened? You began to see persecution happen, especially, oddly, by Rupert Murdoch, who was just starting in the publishing world. They started attacking him, attacking him. And so what did he do? He said, we cannot create our society here. We need to go to Guyana and create a utopia there. Now, spoiler alert, that didn't go well. But the desire in the face of persecution to create a new utopia is really strong. And we see this uh, instinct in many different places. Go ahead, Terry. Uh, during the colonial period, many of the many of the groups in America came here to escape religious persecution. The Mennonites, the Puritans, German Pietist movements. The Mormons went off to U- Utah to create a spiritual utopia. Uh, Indian Muslims moved to Pakistan and Bangladesh to create a religious utopia. Jews going to Israel at, at the beginning of the Kibbutzim, uh, Kibbutzim movement was imagined as utopia. If you have Netflix and have seen Wild Country. Uh, uh, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh wanted to co- create a spiritual utopia in Oregon. So the Jonestown impulse is something 
that religions have across time. If they're feeling persecuted and they have the means, they want to create a spiritual utopia where everybody shares their beliefs. So, um, if you, even if you look at Jonestown, why did they, why did they commit their revolutionary suicide? It's because Jones said there's no place on earth that he could create this utopia. The, the tentacles of the U.S. government were going to find him anywhere. Key aspect, on earth. What if you didn't have to stay on earth? What if technology develops as a, as a way to get to Venus or to Mars to create spiritual utopias? Well, you need a group that is powerful and feels persecuted. Who feels powerful and, and or who is powerful and yet feels persecuted? Study after study show that white evangelical Protestants think that they are the most persecuted group in America. Not Muslims, not Jews. White evangelicals believe that they're the most persecuted. If you go to the next one, uh, again and again, who's more persecuted, Muslims in America or white evangelicals? Every group accurately says Muslims, except for white evangelicals who believe they are. So what will happen? Again, uh, in this poll, evangelicals think that LGBTQ are slightly more persecuted than them, but only by a little bit. It's poll after poll study shows that white evangelicals believe that they are the most persecuted group in America. They have money. They have technology. They believe they're persecuted. So what will they do? I think once the technology comes, they're going to be the ones who, who colonize Mars and Venus to create these spiritual utopias. Um, it will be really interesting to see what the communities do with those left behind. Um, but there will always be this fanatical margin who says, I can create a place, even if it's another planet, where everybody is going to be my kind of Christian. Uh, and the prediction is we'll at least see some religious colonies as things go forward. And to throw a kicker out there, uh, we will also sometime come across intelligent life, perhaps, and there'll be a rush to evangelize these new species. You have to imagine whoever gets them first has a leg up in converting the alien masses, competing rockets for Jesus. Uh, you can see this, uh, the first converts of it. So, prediction five, interplanetary religious colonies. So, what do we do with these? These are five possible elements to the religion of your great-grandkids. I now finally have a better answer to the person who asked me that question. However, as we said, predictions of the future rarely turn out to be accurate. But here's why I think we could, should still make them. They're often interesting windows into our current environment. Predictions about the future, whether it's 2100 or 2030 or even 2020, reveal our hopes and our desires, as well as our fears and our phobias. Future worlds that we imagine for ourselves are ultimately about the people who are doing the imagining. What do we hope the world will be like? It leads us to talk about who we are in essence, regardless of technology and time period. And in a sense, I think speculating about the future then can be valuable. And if any of these things happen, it will likely be long after most of us have um, matriculated out of life. But I think the spirit that holds this and so many communities of faith uh, and support together will hopefully still be alive and active. Technology may change how we access it, but it will always be in the recesses of the human heart 
where we feel the connection to each other and our hopes seen in others. And my hope is that we all become reminders of that spirit, no matter how the world shifts around us in the next decade or the next century. Amen.